there's been enough studies, there's been enough data shown that diverse firms, diverse organizations, diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams, organizations, and firms, period. It just makes sense, right? Um, you know, you think about a leadership team, you want a specialist in data and IT, you want a specialist in finance and operations and legal and, and whatnot to be able to best consult the CEO and the organization in areas that they're specific to. And the same thing applies when you think about diversity. If you don't have the voice of uh, Hispanics, if you don't have the voice of African-Americans, you don't have the voice of people who have a disability, how are you going to be able to ensure that your decisions are not adversely impacting certain populations? So it's just good business. It's good decision-making process uh, practices. So for those who are trying to strip that away, I just think it's ignorance because it's just good business. And, and, and it's the right thing to do too. Yo, welcome back to Scholarships to Podcast. Uh, as always, we want to start this podcast with gratitude to you. Thank you so much for continuing to tap in with us, sharing, um, posting us, doing anything you can to promote the brand. Um, and we'll do our part to continue to bring on quality guests, have conversations with people that we think are extraordinary that will continue to, you know, push the brand, push, you know, culture, push everything that we think is important to our society. So today is no different. Um, today we're interviewing Andrew Adini, who is the CEO of AAA Solutions. Andrew is passionate about entrepreneurship, organizational culture, and business strategy with a focus on DEI, diversity and inclusion. Um, it was a pleasure to interview this this brother. He's an alpha. I mean, I love it. Love the bros, but like this dude is, he's, he's different. And it's nice to have fresh conversations with people that are going about it in a different way that uh, truly enjoy their purpose. We talk about his decision to go to college. We talk about his decision to get a master's. We talk a little bit about everything. And I think that his perspective is something that's very fresh and that's needed in our society. With that being said, let me kick it off to Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, thanks for having me on the show. Definitely appreciate it. So yeah, I'm a first generation Nigerian American. I grew up primarily in South Bend, Indiana, right down the street from, from Notre Dame and uh, was really sports formed a lot of my early years. Basketball, football, and track consumed most of my free time. Ended up going to Indiana University to study entrepreneurship and corporate innovation after high school. And I went there for two reasons. The business school was really good. And uh, secondly, I was supposed to be a preferred walk-on for the football team there. Ultimately decided to hang up the cleats and, and not pursue that due to an uh, inj uh, injury that I had uh, when I was starting. And if you know anything about being a walk-on, you can't go to the summer programs until you're actually officially part of the, the school. So being behind on missing training camp, plus the injury that I experienced, just decided to focus on getting into the business school. Ultimately did a great experience. And I got a master's from Michigan State University that was in management strategy and leadership and then have a certificate in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace from University of South Florida. So educationally, that's my background. I live in the greater Indianapolis area and have lived here since 2014. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, it's a little bit about kind of my upbringing and, and education as well. Yeah, so you said uh, you're, you're first generation Nigerian. Um, yeah. Tell us about like, just what's that like? I, I heard a podcast <laughs> where you're talking about your parents, you know, coming over here and you know, get it together. So tell us about what, what, what was that like being raised in South Bend? It's unique because you have parents who don't fully understand what it's like socially, you know, when you're going to school and what you're experiencing, you are black and that's what you look like. However, you know, black kids at school know very, very well that, you know, you're, you're Nigerian or you're African. So there's a little bit of distance even from the black community at times. And then you're obviously not white. So mm -hmm. there's there's difficulties there. So I think I from an identity standpoint, there were some challenges that I think I had to navigate growing up. But what really helped was sports. I think sports was truly a, a, an equalizer, if you will, and kind of neutralized things for me. It allowed me to bypass some of the uh, some of those challenges around identity that I think other people who may not have that outlet or have that other platform, if you will, to be 
deemed as popular, to be deemed as successful at, at that age um, that they didn't have. So I would just say it's uh, just give me a unique outlook on things for sure. Are you are you an only child or any I got, siblings? We got two siblings. Older sister lives in Dallas and a younger sister, uh, Michelle, who lives in Chicago. Oh, so only boy. Only no, boy. No, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> only boy. Yeah. In the middle. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh I'm one of like eleven, so I grew up in like a really big family where it was, you know, I always say like there was no such thing as like leftovers and things like that. <laughs> you know, it's it's good. You always have somebody to play with, but it was never like, I don't know. You always had the hand me downs and things like that, and you know, whatever. Um, was there always pressure to go to college uh, from from the jump, or is that something that you just naturally gravitated oh. to? Yeah, so education is one of the core principles in, in my household. You know, I mentioned I'm first generation Nigerian American. So both my parents were born and raised in Nigeria and they both uh, separated from their families uh, around their early teens. So, and from that point forward, they never lived with their parents again. So they've really been on this journey of just trying to make it. I'm talking about getting out the mud. They, they got out the mud from a third world country, right? And are doing extremely well in America and they, attribute a lot of that to obviously faith first and foremost, but then work ethic and education. So early on, I remember hearing, hey, you're going to go to college, but I'm not going to pay for it and you're not going to take out loans. So <laughs> yeah, I'm like, OK, talk about pressure. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like elementary going into middle school here. And like, OK, I guess I'm going to college. I'm not paying for it. They're not paying for it, but we're going. So I think that just instilled in me like, hey, not going to college is not an option, but also you have to be smart about it. So luckily, I was able to uh, take advantage of programs like 21st Century Scholars to be able to get tuition paid for in-state. That's another big reason why I selected IU as an in-state school. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think the rest was history. But yeah, I definitely had that that expectation growing up that college was what I was going to do. My, my father has a Ph.D. and uh, my mother's working on her Ph.D., has her master's. My older sister has a Ph.D., Younger sister has a master. So like education and, and not just undergrad, but like continuing to learn and develop and grow was something that was just ingrained, ingrained in us at an early age. Yeah. I mean, even even for your parents to have the foresight to say, like, you know, we're not paying for it and you're not taking student loans. I think that that's I mean, I'm paying student loans every month, brother. <laughs> it's a real thing where like I so I kind of had the opposite where my, my family didn't really have. Um, like and they their first generation right like they're from america but they're first generation so to me i remember thinking like oh i'll be the one and if this is the sacrifice i have to make and now i'm looking mm -hmm. at that sacrifice of loans and i'm like bro i don't know i don't know, <laughs> I don't know if it was the right i don't know if it was the right call but i guess just them having the foresight to be like hey like we understand like the pressures that might come with student loans right especially given this economy and how things are going like, I mean, granted, I, th I think there's still a grace period, um, but I mean, not having that, that to deal with that, right, is is yeah. so important, I would imagine, <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Now, my master's program, I'm paying for that. So yeah. I'm, I'm on pause. That one was not free, and that one was on me. But at least the undergrad, not having to deal with that, that's a huge, True. that's a huge, you know, dodging a bullet there, for sure. Uh, what was it like at uh, IU? I guess I, I've never been. Like I said, I went to Notre Dame, but and I don't even think I have a, a few buddies that went to IU. And it's not like a real rivalry, right? Because we never play each other. And apparently we're scared of IU. That's what, that's <laughs> what, that's what all my IU buddies say. But how was it like, uh, you know, going to IU? It was overall great experience. IU, I think, is a great balance of fun, extracurriculars, parties, social and mm -hmm. education. A lot of their uh, colleges are, you know, highly ranked. The business school is is ranked highly, uh, as I mentioned as well. So I think they just it was a really good balancing act. The campus itself is beautiful. I think mm -hmm. the only campus I've been to that's even remotely close in terms of just being aesthetically pleasing was probably USC. And, you know, it's, it's seriously stunning. So just walking on cam campus was great. It's a predominantly white institution, so 40,000 people there. It's roughly 4% black. Mm -hmm. So that's that's something I had to navigate, where you go in these large lecture halls with over 100 people, and you know there's a handful of black people. So mm -hmm. just the awareness of difference was, was very alarming and eye-opening and just understanding of culture. 
um, was huge. But what really helped with that experience was that I, I pledged the only fraternity that matters, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity of Incorporated. Course, yeah, the oldest yeah. and the coldest to, to do it. So that helped because I was immediately immersed in a world that although it was only 4% of the whole university, 4% of 40,000, that's a decent number, right? Mm -hmm. So when you really get locked in with that community, now you're going to the social events, you're going to all the different things where you see people who look like you. Mm -hmm. So so just to step back a bit, like how was the, I guess, what was your high school experience? Was it, was it diverse at all? Because I know for me in my high school, right, there was, it was all black people. Like there was mm -hmm. maybe two, two white dudes uh, yeah. a few Asians maybe but like it was all it was two white dudes like in one player stigma like so <laughs> you know like it wasn't like a it wasn't diverse but I guess what high high school experience versus like college because I know walking into that classroom for me at least was just like I'm the yeah. only black person here <laughs> you know? it, it's interesting because before I moved to South Bend when I was going to middle school I used to live in Niles Michigan and when I was mm -hmm. in Niles Michigan it was like all white like one other black kid maybe in the class and maybe, you know, a, a biracial uh, person in the class as well. So that was my kind of introduction to school was being the only. When I went to South, uh, South Bend schools, it was a lot more diverse. So I would say my high school might have been maybe 30% uh, black, right? So mm -hmm. to me, that felt like a whole different world, just walking into being able to see culture and different cultures and things of that nature. So that's really what I experienced from middle school and high school. So from mm. going from that to IU, it was almost a step back to my childhood memories just on steroids because yeah. I mean, when, you, when you're on a campus that massive with that many people and you can walk down the street that long and see that many people that don't look like you, it's just, mm -hmm. it's a unique experience for sure. Yeah. And it's, I, I think me and Larry always talk about how you know, we always got confused with like the basketball players or the football players. Like, you know, they would ask us like, you know, hey, number 12, can you sign this? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Or I don't I mean, <laughs> I didn't play sports or anything, but I was just like, you know, like if you guys think that I played whatever, somebody has an autograph <laughs> of mine somewhere that means nothing, you know, to anybody. But uh, yeah, so you graduate, you graduate. And then what? What happens after that? So I had a couple internships with uh, an international retailer, grocery grocery retailer, and the internship went really well. I had back-to-back -back internships going into my junior year and my senior year. So when I graduated, I had a full-time offer waiting for me that, that I already accepted. So that was a blessing to have a high-paying yeah. job, yeah. Uh, going into senior year with an offer. That made life amazing. So you know, once I left, I worked as a, as a district manager. So I oversaw stores in Indiana uh, primarily and worked there for about five years, two of which I spent on the East Coast working uh, in, in one of their divisions on uh, in D.C. area. Walk us through the process of saying like, hey, I think I'm going to get another degree or what were some things that were going on in your head during that time? Yes, yeah, so I always knew I was going to get an advanced degree. Like I mentioned, education was super huge in my family. So it's just a matter of when not if. So when I started to evaluate, well, when should I do it? It made sense to think about doing it before I had kids. And although I didn't have plans to have kids anytime soon, it was like, let me let me get this out, out the way. So I think that was the first thing that just allowed it to be in my mind. Um, mm. But I remember having a conversation with my mom, and this kind of speaks to, you know, the, the culture and mindset. And you know, at that point, I'm in, I'm in DC, um, kind of an advanced elevated role and making a whole bunch of money, brand new car, just living the life that I would want to live basically if I was in high school or college. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to her one day and she's like, uh, make sure your younger sister doesn't get uh, an advanced degree before you do. And at the time, my sister was already enrolled in a one year <laughs> program <laughs> at Notre Dame, by the way. And oh, I'm just man. like, I'm just like, mom, <laughs> There's no way I'm going to get an advanced degree before her. Most programs are two years. Hers yeah. is one year. And she's already enrolled. Like just the level of it didn't even make sense. Like that that's mm -hmm. the sense of urgency and expectation that they put. So I'm going to get off the phone like, damn, I guess I guess making good money and living this lifestyle and doing this <laughs> is not enough. Like I, I need an advanced degree. So like I said, I knew I needed to do it anyway. So I didn't I didn't trip too much over it, but I did prioritize it at that point. So initially I was going to do the, I did the GMAT, uh, 
man, that GMAC whooped my butt, man. It, it was not a pretty sight. Quickly realized, all right, maybe God has different plans. <laughs> so, because so, so, I, I studied hard for that too, I was like, man, if yeah. I can study that hard and, and score it's like still that, still bomb like that, <laughs> maybe this is not for me. So I was like, all right, God, what you got for me? And and then I started thinking about, well, I wonder what programs exist that don't require the GMAT. Mm -hmm. I have a business undergrad, so an MBA is is typically a more broad business degree, and I have a lot of those fundamentals. Maybe I need to specialize. So I randomly uh, ran across Michigan State they had a management strategy and leadership program, didn't require a GMAT. And it also allowed me to specialize in, in where I felt I was the most gifted mm -hmm. and also what I was the most uh, excited and passionate about. So that was my journey to finding Michigan State and enrolling in that program. And I was doing that while I was working full time. Nice. So so you so you're balancing, I mean, work and an advanced degree which I, I've been going back and forth on whether or not it's worth it, right? Like I have a JD, so I, but I'm like, you know, oh, what if I got an MBA and things like that? But I think just that, ha just having that balance is so important. How was that? How was How were you able to to navigate that? Like a, a big paying job and, you know, a real degree. It's not like something you could just brush off. How did you yeah. balance that? Um, I think number one, just setting realistic expectations. So upfront, getting a good understanding of what is the time commitment? What does that look like? I, I really did my due diligence and talked to a lot of folks to figure out like, all right, what, what does it truly look like? And I think once I had a good understanding of what that could look like, it was just a matter of execution from there. So, mm. you know, whatever you can do during the workday, you do. A lot of people may not have that opportunity. So if you don't have that opportunity, then you get home, you eat, you you know spend some time relaxing, but then there's a certain time in the evening where it's it's game time, right? And you mm -hmm. gotta shut down the distractions and fire up the laptop and and do what you need to do. There's other moments where, hey, you know, Sunday is gonna be my day to really dive in. Where there's gonna mm. be a six hour block to just knock it out. And if I do some work throughout the week, on top of that, great. But if not, I know Sunday is when I need to just buckle down. Uh, and do that. But then also having balance. So, you know, at the time I was, I was, uh, you know, living downtown DC, like I mentioned, making a bunch of money, not married, didn't have any kids. So I was in a, a situation where I wanted to enjoy myself. I wanted mm -hmm. to go to brunch. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to network, do those types of things. And I made sure I did those, uh, which made it easier to buckle down the next day or the day before to get the work done. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's it's always important to, to have it not not work hard, play hard. I think that's kind of like cliche, but it's, it's the same theory, right? Where you're like, yo, I'm going to hang out and do what I can, right? Like business development or build these relationships. But still, like, I'm I'm going to get my stuff done tomorrow. You know, now yeah. I think that's super important. Um, So you, you're making this money. You got a fly car doing your thing. Then you tell me when you were like yeah i'm good let me let me go ahead and be an entrepreneur let me just quit all of the things like what what was that like because i i mean i i think i think that's one of the more courageous things to do especially when you have the most money you've probably ever had like what yeah. what was the process of leaving corporate america yeah what was that like i mean first and foremost i'm a man of faith and i felt like god made it crystal clear to me that that's what i needed to do uh, i had had some situations in life where god had told me to jump and I didn't jump or make a career transition or make a move out of fear and out of just concern that, you know, doesn't make sense. And, you know, you have enough doors slammed and enough things happen after you don't uh, take signs to where, you know, I had just made a commitment that, hey, God, if you tell me to jump, I'm going to jump. You know, I'm just going to ask how high. Right. Or I'm just going to have faith that you're going to you're going to take care. And that's really what happened that led me to this point. I was <clears throat> I was uh, getting burnt out. So at the time I was working for Starbucks as a multi-unit leader and I was doing my business on the side. And I realized that, man, my business is growing. My workload at work is increasing. I'm doing really well at both, but I'm on the verge for a promotion at work and I'm not gonna be able to juggle everything. But I realized I was not willing to let go of my business. So uh, luckily we were expecting our third child. So I was about to go on paternity leave. And when I went on leave, uh, you know, it was a 12 week leave, great benefits at Starbucks, by the way. Very you. fortunate to have worked there. And during that time off, I just got to sit and, and think. And, and I realized that, man, I'm about to add a few more clients to my portfolio 
and I'm going to come back to kind of an expedited track to promotion. So I, I have some decisions to make. And on the, the last day before I went on leave, I randomly had an, uh, uh, an organization, a cancer organization at that, reach out to me saying they wanted to work with me. And I just found out that my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Damn. So I remember thinking, what are the chances? Just find that out while my dad, a cancer organization, reaches out unsolicited and they want to want to work with me. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Had an adjunct professor teaching opportunity also present itself randomly. Just so happened to start in August, which was tentative time frame. I was considering leaving if I were to leave. Mm-hmm. My marketing consultant uh, or social media strategist that I worked with for my brand, uh, we had a call around the same time I was about to go on paternity leave. And she also mentioned, hey, have you ever thought about throwing an event? She's like, I think you should consider you know, August for an event. So I had all these signs pointing towards August as a date, as well as that there's business coming, as well as there's God's God confirming what I needed to do. And I was still nervous. We're expecting our third child. We just bought a brand new house. Uh, mortgage increased, expenses, mm-hmm. lifestyle have increased. Love my job, great salary, great benefits. Again, it didn't make sense. And then tragically, my brother-in-law's girlfriend got murdered 15 mm-hmm. minutes before her 26th birthday in Chicago, randomly pulling up to his house. Something you'd see out of a movie, literally. Mm-hmm. And it really wa- rocked our our world. Uh, you know, no gang affiliation whatsoever, no leads to this day, no tips, no anything. Super random. And I remember sitting in that experience and saying, you know, people always talk about tragic situations and sit in that moment. And then they just go back to doing what they're doing before. Mm-hmm. Like, like nothing changes. And for some reason that didn't sit right with me. So I remember just asking God, like, what do you want me to take from this? And he just made it super clear, like life is short, so you need to chase your dreams. And that was the moment I decided I was going to put in my notice. It was just a matter of when. Mm. Thank Man, thank you for sharing that. I think it's uh, it's funny you say that because even when your mom said, uh, I thought about this and I didn't know if it was the right question to say, but when your mom said, hey, you have to you have to finish your degree before your sister, it's all about time, right? Like, it's like, it's not even, I mean, I'm sure she's well aware that, hey, like you're not going to do it but it's the fact that she, she was like hey you need to do it now like what are you waiting for kind of thing and i think death or you know about your father like getting those scares kind of light something because I, I had a my, my brother was uh killed when he, when he was 15 and it yeah. kind of like pushed me to be a lawyer because i didn't like how like we didn't have representation right like how we would call cops and they would not do anything but i think those kinds of situations just make you reevaluate everything right and then i think the hard part about it though is knowing that it's the right decision right like because i i mean you had some things that are like cancer okay cancer you know then you have your you know brother-in-law's uh girlfriend um i believe and like just those little things and you're like you know all these people are reaching out to me probably overwhelming right at the time or just tell me how was it at the time like dealing with all of that it was a lot. It was mixed emotions. You know, you're anxious, you know, fearful, wondering if you're doing the right thing. But like I said, I, I had had so many things happen so far in my life to where once he started, once God started talking to me and telling me what it needed, what I needed to do, that quickly turned into, OK, clarity. Yeah. Like now I just need to get my wife on board. <laughs> and, 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 and literally up until the day before I was going to give my notice to my boss at Starbucks, she was not fully bought in. And I'll tell you this story. So that night before uh, I was going to give my notice, I come downstairs. We just put our kids down for bed. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You know, I just feel like listening to music. So I go to YouTube. I'm about to listen to Chris Brown. You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> just, re- just relax. Hear some good music. And some just told me, like, put on gospel music. You know, tomorrow's a big day. Just put on gospel music. And I switched to gospel music. And like 10 minutes later, my wife comes down the steps and she just starts looking at the TV and listening to the words. And she just starts crying. I'm like, what are you crying about? She was like, <laughs> she, she was like, I literally prayed to God that he would make it super clear to me if this is what we need to be doing or not. And I come downstairs and the words of the song were literally saying something that confirmed that answered a prayer she personally had. I remember sitting there thinking, like, 
this is about to be Chris Brown. Like it's literally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to be something else. This was this is about to be this is about to be a dance party. And yeah. and you know, so it's those little moments like that when you're in tune with, with your faith or just a, something bigger than yourself, you're you're mm-hmm. hungry for it and you're willing to have the courage to act on it. Yeah. I had just gotten to a point where that clarity was just so so convincing. Mm-hmm. And, and and that that that's what got her on board. And I remember telling God, like, hey, you already spoken to me. I get it. I'm doing it. I'm going to mm-hmm. trust in you. You need to work on her because nothing I can say is going to change it. That's got to go through you. So for me, it was all about a spiritual situation. But I also want to mention that you have to, you know, I feel like God, God rewards those who, who also work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people now talk about, man, you're growing your business so fast and you're experiencing this success. And, you know, I appreciate that. But I'm like, man, I've, I've been shooting in the gym for a while. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been doing 9 p.m. to midnight four or five days a week for years mm-hmm. grinding. You know, what I mean, so it's I'm just now reaping the fruits of that labor, but I've been putting in the work for quite some time. Yeah, and I, I guess that kind of gets me to the next question, because I think a lot of times I mean, in this day and age, a lot of times it's all about social media and like how you're perceived, right? Like everybody's yeah. a, in real estate. Everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody's this. And it it looks good in theory, right? Like there's I, I truly respect those that are w- willing to put themselves out there. But I guess talk, talk to us about the, the aspects of being an entrepreneur that aren't as glorified, like the nights, the no's, you know, the <laughs> things that kind of you know, keep you up at night? What, what are those things for you? Man, it's, it's a roller coaster ride. Being an entrepreneur is a roller coaster ride. You know, it could be, you land this great lead. You have a great lead. All signs are pointing towards a deal. You're excited about it. And last minute, something happens, change in budget. CEO says no layoffs, whatever it may be. And the domino effect of that is you have no client. Now, the work, the time, the energy you've invested in preparing for it, talking with them is now gone. So managing that situation to, um, you know, just cash flow challenges. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting paid every two weeks. That's that's (laughs) non-existent in my life. Now, it's once a month and I don't know exactly when that's even going to come. So the mental gymnastics you have to do around knowing that, hey, I got a lot of money coming, but it's not here right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And and how do you manage that? How do you balance that? How do you be physically responsible uh, in the midst of, of that season? I think another challenge for me is is working on the business versus working in the business. Mm-hmm. So you spend all this time with business development. You get these clients locked in. You're excited. There's money coming in. But now you got to do the work. But even as you're doing the work, there's an end date to these contracts. And the mortgage company don't care about none of them end dates. They need this yeah. mortgage on on time. So mm-hmm. having to do quality work, not cut corners, but still be able to step back from the business and work on growing the business is something that takes a lot of my mental energy right now. Explain. Uh, I mean, talk to us about talk to us about uh, your like your current role, like what you actually do on the day to day. Yeah, yeah. So I'm the CEO and founder of AAA Solutions, and we provide workplace culture and diversity, equity and inclusion services. Mm. So what that looks like is really two things, consulting and training. From a consulting perspective, uh, we do a lot of data collection. So Mm. we use assessments. Uh, We're authorized partner for DISC and the five behaviors of a team. That really drives a lot of the culture work we do. When it comes to DEI, we do our own DEI surveys, we do focus groups, interviews. It allows us to get employee sentiment around DEI. We then use that data to create a strategic plan. So that's where we craft a custom three-year strategic plan for clients. And then we work alongside typically like a DEI committee or a cross-functional team within their organization to accomplish those goals. So that's what we do from a consulting perspective. And then training, I have a curriculum called the Building Blocks of Belonging that I created. And it really walks uh, an audience through how do you create a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture? It's the foundation for what will be my second book. Knock on wood should be done before the end of the year. So I'm excited about that. Uh, So a lot of the training is on that curriculum, uh, as well as my book, The Circle of Leadership, which is a book on how to create and leverage culture. Mm. What made you choose DEI and why do you think it's so important, especially in this day and age? Well, I'm extremely passionate about workplace culture, which is why I wrote the book. And one of the chapters in the book is on DEI. 
and the book came out the summer of 2020. So with the George Floyd murder, that just uh, really sent shockwaves through the world, as you can imagine. And the impact was people wanting training, wanting more information, wanting yeah. uh, assistance, right? So that very quickly became my most sought after training and uh, consulting that I was doing. Um, one thing that you talked about was like the George Floyd um, murder, which is tragic. And I, just the timing of it was just insane. How do you feel about um, DEI initiatives that are that appear to be more reactive rather than proactive? Um, you know, like like where there, you know, something like George Floyd happens, which is something that happens all the time, especially in the black community. Um, and at times I'm like indifferent about it, but I, I wanted to see what you thought about, you know, the reaction from companies like in general. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that it took an event like that to spur action and change and awareness, right? Mm -hmm. You would hope that it didn't take something like that, but it did. And I like to look at it from the standpoint of, okay, we got people's attention. People who mm -hmm. didn't realize that some people were having these types of experiences in the workplace, in the community, et cetera, they now know and want to do something about it. And although that's reactive, if you will, mm -hmm. at least we're at the awareness point, which is the first step to be able to make any type of change. So, and that kind of leads to my approach. My approach is very much one where I don't try to infuse shame. I don't try to infuse guilt into the training consulting I do because and this is something I had to figure out early on. Am I trying to vent or am I trying to problem solve? Two two different routes, both very, very valid, both mm -hmm. very valid approaches. But for me, I'm trying to do stuff that make my my sons and my daughter, when they get to my age, I want them to have a different experience than I had. Mm. And that's not going to come from venting. <laughs> okay. Mm. That's going to come from solving some problems. And I realize you can't solve any problems without having courageous conversations. And you can't have any courageous conversations if people are experiencing shame and guilt. People need to feel safe to come to the table and, and talk. And um, I think it's important for DEI practitioners, especially to take that because I've, I've also seen where some people are doing more harm than good because they're coming into these conversations, guns are blazing, uh, very harsh, very direct. And although I can respect everyone approaching it the same, their unique way, I'm about results and I just find it better to get results if you don't have shame and guilt. So, um, so that's kind of my stance on it. You know, it's people are being reactive, but my big thing is make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Now that you know what's going on, why do you want to address this? Is it so you're, you don't look bad to your peers? Is it just to keep up with what you think is the status quo? Or do you truly understand the value of prioritizing DEI in the workplace? And are you doing it for the right reasons? Now that that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, you know, for me, it was a bit frustrating. Uh, like I said earlier, how, I don't know, there's like not a ton of black lawyers, right? Like, I think we make up, I don't know, less than 2% of all lawyers. And, uh, you know, anytime, especially in big law, right? Like there, I, it drops down even more, especially with black women and, and so on. Uh, I think it's it's frustrating because, you know, you have some of the smartest people in the world trying to figure out diverse like figure out people right and they they if you ask them they're always like oh i don't know but you can say <laughs> like you know wells fargo is crashing or svb the 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 crash that they had you put some lawyers in a room and i guarantee you're coming out with an answer and i'm always frustrated because i'm like you know is, is it a choice is it you know just that you guys don't really care or whatever and it, uh, that's why i always appreciate one that shame versus guilt thing is so important just because i never i guess i never looked at it that way where it's like you know what what do i want to come from this right do i want you guys to be like walk home and be like oh you know we as americans have done terrible to black people or how can i improve this and i think what you said was pretty profound because i never i never really thought about it that way but it is it is frustrating when i'm like i'm i think i'm the only i'm one of two black people in my in my in my firm in Chicago, not three. It's a black woman, but like, you know, it's it's frustrating when like yeah, you know, these initiatives go on or Black History Month comes and you're, you're just like, all right, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't get me wrong. My firm is actually like really like I don't know, any the two firms I've been to. My firm is actually committed to it, and I think it's in part because we have a um a, a Indian woman 
uh, who is our, our DEI person. I think a lot of times you see like, you know, DEI, DEI people, they're like, you know, white women, which is not like a terrible thing, right? Like, I'm not saying that that's bad, but I think having someone that knows what it's like to, to go through, you know, some racial biases or like uncomfortable conversations is important. Yeah. Um, I don't know if what you think about that, but you know, that's kind of just my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the optics matter. You don't want yeah. that to be the, the primary focus, but they do matter. And I think some messages are going to land better with certain folks based on the demographics of, of that individual. Mm. So, you know, I just think it's important again for the CEO to be bought in senior leadership team to be bought in and committed and for them to actually want to prioritize this work. And a lot of times that starts with, uh, you know, who's at the who's at the helm. So even if it is a white woman, even if it is a white man, what's the reasoning? Why? What's their story? What's their approach and their perspective? And how are they going to navigate some of those challenges that will come if, if you know, from an optic perspective, there's going to be questions on why is this person leading this initiative and not somebody else? I saw on one of your podcasts, you talked about uh, work culture, because it's kind of what, what, what your whole um, your whole company is about. Um, mm -hmm. And you talked about just like fear fear culture versus like empathy you know a yeah. culture of empathy and yeah. i kind of just wanted to i like i said this was another thing that i just didn't think of and I, I guess i want you to talk about just the differences um that you've seen and which which works better i guess yeah so the reason i wrote my book is because i worked for one of the best divisions of the international uh retailer company i i mentioned uh, in indiana and that was my first job out of college i just assumed everyone had a great culture Mm -hmm. had great leadership and uh that culture was one where you didn't want to you didn't want to let the leader down you would work overnight you would do whatever it took to ensure that work got done in, in a good fashion because you didn't want to make her look bad that's empathy she's the same person who would remember birth dates she'd remember significant others she would remember some of those finer details that don't show up in a balance sheet don't show up in the in the email inbox she's the one that would do the handwritten notes for your birthday things of that nature all empathetic but still was able to hold people accountable that's what i mean with empathy people mm -hmm. being able to connect emotionally where you can recognize feelings and, and, and emotions but then also express yours because you have good management and self-awareness of that when you talk about fear-based, the division I worked for on the East Coast was a fear-based uh, culture, one where you need to get these results or else. You need to do whatever it takes to do this or else, right? It was based out of fear, not because you respected the leader, not because you felt like you wanted to make sure the leader didn't look bad. It's because you want to make sure you kept your job. And those are the main differences at play. Uh, and usually when I see poor cultures, fears typically you know, one of the one of the uh, descriptors you could use for that culture. Tell us about your book. Like, what was the the process of? I mean, I you asked me. I got like three books in my head, but you know, like the <laughs> actually sitting down and committing it, committing to it. Like, I guess what was the process like? You know, uh, writing a book. Yeah, it was a lot of work for sure. I, I think number one, you have to find something you're really passionate about. Something where on the days you don't feel like writing. You're so passionate about the topic that it will get you to do something that's productive towards finishing the book, whether that's reading an article, trying to land an interview, figuring out some questions you want to answer later, even just writing out a story. Right. The topic is really what has to propel you forward. So I think that's important. The other thing is figuring out what works best for you. So what I what I realized was that it was also hard for me to sit down at a laptop and just write. Uh, and I started to kind of audit my day and realize that my best thoughts and my most cre creative time frame uh, was in the morning when I was at the gym. So I was like, you know what, instead of going on social media between sets and doing whatever else, checking emails, let me just write. So I literally would do that random thoughts, nuggets. I'd put in a Google doc or I would just, hey, you know, reference this story or type out this story. And I was able to compile a whole bunch of information just as you know, as a result of me doing that, which as a byproduct made me want to work out more because I started to realize if when I go to the gym is when I produce a lot of content, if I'm not there, I'm not doing as much. So that played a huge role. Um, another tip I would mention is just not trying to edit while you write. 
Like just get it on paper, period. I, I wouldn't even edit it once you're done writing it. I would just keep writing, 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 and then edit later. That tends to be more conducive to you operating out of flow and to get all the thoughts out on paper and make more progress than typing and editing, typing and editing. How did you know it was finished? Like your book, how did you know like, yeah, that's it, that's complete? Uh, just, you know, part of, so I did a lot of reading in preparation for the book. I listened mm -hmm. to a lot of podcasts and I had a lot of interviews and mm -hmm. all the themes that emerged from those different sources could fit under at least one of the three pillars of culture that I talk about. And mm -hmm. I felt like, and I felt like nothing was missing. And that allowed me, and plus I had editors and people who were reading and giving feedback. So I just felt like there was nothing missing that was critical to transforming or elevating culture. Yeah, and in your book, you talk about the three M's, um, which I thought were super like unique and different. Um, could you tell us about the three M's? Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all about employee engagement, right? And it's measure, matter, motivate. Uh, when we talk about measurement, it's it's a scoreboard. There's a reason why scores have a scoreboard. It's important to know progress, to know what what's the end goal, uh, to understand how we're doing and be able to get that feedback in real time. The same thing is true in work. People need to know how am I going to be evaluated, right? What are the metrics? What are the things I need to move? What are the things you're going to look for? That in itself can serve as a, as a motivator, which is the second M, right? Uh, when you talk about motivation, all people are motivated differently and motivated by different things. And I think leaders oftentimes don't take the time to understand what that is. Hey, is your big thing just being able to afford your kids, being able to uh, participate in activities? Mm -hmm. Are you motivated by being able to take that quarterly trip? Are you motivated by public recognition? Do you want an award? Do you want to lead a special project? Is it a promotion? Is it a raise? What are the things that truly get you to actually do more work or do better work leaders can't answer that question for each individual on their team and that's part of the problem so leaders have to figure that out that in itself will help you to know what levers to pull to get the most out of your team um, and then uh, matter people need to know that their work matters to somebody mm -hmm. it could be to the vendor they work with it could be to the customers it could just be to the boss right you have to make it explicitly clear if you're a leader of people why somebody's work matters and to who it matters to and make sure that person knows that i found that if you do those three things well you're much more likely to have an engaged uh team member mm. and i think you know from what i've what i've gathered from what i've uh, researched on you and things like that it seems like you know at leaders having a sense of uh emotional intelligence is important and i know you talk about like just like vulnerability and I think, you know, it's hard for people to be vulnerable in general, right? Like if you look on social media, everybody's living the best life they can. It's not like they got the perfect marriage. They got the perfect kids. Um, and I guess when you're trying to be vulnerable to, you know, a boss or a manager and vice versa, I guess, how do you sell that to to that that leader to, to the importance of vulnerability? Let's just talk about the importance of vulnerability and then how you sell it to them. Yeah, vulnerability is is power. Vulnerability is influence. It, it allows you to be more human. It allows you to build more trusting uh, environments where you can collaborate and get the most out of your team. I think most people have not seen it modeled well, which mm. is part of the problem, right? You think about two thirds of cultures being poor and people disliking the workplace. There's probably not a whole lot of vulnerability taking place in those in those cultures, right? Which means there's not leaders who are demonstrating it. There's not leaders who are rewarding it. And then therefore, there's not people who are seeing it done well. So they just assimilate to what they do see, which are typically toxic practices of leadership. Um, I think about when I was at Starbucks, you know, this was the first time I saw vulnerability really modeled well. Well, the VP I worked with at the international retailer, she also did a really good job. Um, but in terms of a direct leader, and I got to Starbucks, I remember working for uh, a woman named Levon. And, you know, we, we'd have our Monday meetings and she'd ask, you know, people asked, how's everyone doing? And somebody asked her and she's like, you know what, I'm not really feeling it today. It was a tough weekend. Um, some things, you know, came up and 
not really feeling good. So, you know, if I seem a little disconnected or disengaged or whatever like that, like just give me some grace. That's what's going on. And I remember thinking like, ooh, that's different. I've never heard a leader just, you know, it's always, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? You know, just everything's chipper all the time. And she wasn't yeah, afraid always. to say that. You know, she wasn't afraid to send out an email before a call and say, hey, we're going to cancel the call today. Uh, it's just not a good day for me. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll reconvene next week. If you have anything urgent, reach out to me. I'll be available via email, like things like that, um, even down to questions where, hey, hey, Levon, um, do you know where we can go to get X, Y and Z? No, I have no idea. But let me see if I can find out for you. Like just being able to show that hey, I don't have to have all the answers because I'm the leader. I, I have no idea. And I feel perfectly fine letting you know that I'll go and find it out for you. But I don't need to put up this facade to make you think I got it all together because nobody has it all together. But we all try to do that. And that doesn't leave room for vulnerability to show up. And when you can be vulnerable, people feel like they can trust you more. Mm -hmm. And if you add trust to any team, you're going to be able to produce some better results. Very, very true. I think vulnerability for the longest, I thought it was uh a negative you know like it was something that made you look weak but it's kind of one of the more strong like feelings or things that you can actually uh convey or do on a daily just because it makes you feel it does make you feel feel human and i think especially with lawyers right like i do i remember one of the associates i worked with she was like honestly i'm hungover i'm not reviewing this you know like you know and i think it's small but it was just like oh so you have a social life you know, or like you, you know, you enjoy, you know, what's real, you know, what's important and things like that. So it, it, in, to this to this day, if she ever needed anything from me, like I would I would do it for her. Yeah, um, so so what's your what's your selling point to the company that's very successful? Right. But it's toxic. Right. Like it's you know, like by the end of the day, the the they're in the green, like they're they're in the black. They're not they're profitable. But it's not like you know the best culture. I guess what mm -hmm. what is the what is the point of them changing it? Well, I think first you got to quantify it, right? Because people like data, people like metrics, and it, that's costing you money. You may just not see it, or you've not taken the time to actually calculate it. And you know it could be as simple as exit interviews, mm. right? Or or even better, stay interviews. Send out an interview to folks and and get an idea of how many people would recommend that place. Uh, to their, their friends as a place mm -hmm. to work. Uh, ask how many people see themselves developing their career at your organization. Ask how many of them think they'll be here a year from now and just start to get some some information that allows you to then go back and say, hmm, would, would uh, positively investing in our culture change this? Mm -hmm. Nine out of 10 times, the answer is going to be yes. Then it just is a matter of well, what do we do from there? But you never you never get to that point of what do we do from here unless you pause and realize, oh, wow, 40 percent of the people who left voluntarily over the last year did so because of a culture related matter or their leader or something. Well, how much money did it cost us to replace that those 40 percent of individuals? Oh, wow. OK, so that's how much bad culture is truly costing us. Mm. And, and until leaders have that kind of data, they're going to always uh, veer towards the more tangible aspects of business, the email, the spreadsheet, the report, uh, the things that they know they need to knock out that can you know, very clearly impact the bottom line. A lot of times culture falls in that intangible zone. And with leaders being busy, it's very easy to overlook some of those items. Mm. Yeah. So so what what pushes you currently? Like what makes you, I guess, wake up and you're like, I'm still I still love this, you know, because I think it's all about, it seems like this is part of your purpose. I don't know if it's your full purpose. Right. At least this this company. But like what 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 pushes you currently? So a few different things. Um Number one is is the vision, right? So mm. the, the vision for my company is to be the largest Black-owned DEI consulting firm in the Midwest by 2030. And that pushes me because I can, I can land a large client or, you know, have this great speaking engagement and have a, a bunch of leads that follow it. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm winning. I'm, I'm doing well. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm not the largest Black-owned DEI consulting firm. And by not doing that, I'm not able to have the resources and the human capital to go out and transform workplaces. 
right? And, and that's the other component of it. I've experienced what it's like to be in amazing cultures where you're taken care of and you can be vulnerable and you can be empathetic and you don't have to keep a scorecard of all the wins that you had. People are noticing. People are all about your growth. Nobody's out to get you. Team members are not competing for the same promotion. I've been in those environments, but unfortunately, the majority of people have not in this country. And that thought alone is very disheartening to me because I know how easy it could be to change that experience. So for me, that, that's really what keeps me going. There's cultures out there that need to be transformed. And I feel like my firm is uniquely equipped to be able to do that. So therefore we got work to do. Hmm. What do you, what do you say to the, the individual, the professional that's, that has this idea, you know, they're balancing their work. They hate it, but they have this idea on the side that they kind of, they want to do, but they're just so scared to do it. What do you, what do you say to that person? I would say try to drill down to your why, right? Try to find that, that intersection of what are you passionate about? Mm -hmm. What do you feel like you're naturally gifted at? What are you willing to work at every single day? And, and that over, that also overlaps with a need in the marketplace. Like really spend your time at the crossroads of those items. And that's going to allow you to be fixated on your why and mm. your purpose. Once you have that, it's just a matter of, well, how do you, how do you live in that purpose? Right. And I would encourage people to figure out how they can do that while in their nine to five. Mm. You know, I mentioned I've been doing this work for a while now, um, but it took me from realizing I needed to have a job with more autonomy right and make that transition so that i could use that autonomy to work on my business so i can mm. spend some time during the work day actually doing that but then also putting in the work after hours and you know from like even the scheduling example we talked about i didn't wait till i left my job to figure out okay what should my schedule be no i've been thinking about that for years <laughs> you mm. know what i mean um hey i'm gonna need an executive assistant at some point where do i go who do i get already had that information months, six months plus prior before I left. So a lot of times people put their goals and dreams like in this distant future, like, hey, I, I can't get there. But there's so much you could be doing right now that will help you down the road. Who's going to do your website? Do you have a photographer? Who's going to be your general counsel? Mm -hmm. Who's What's your target market? Why? Read some articles now. Like what platform are you going to use? What bank account are you going to use for your business? What's your logo? Why? Like all these different things you can do right now, but we push it off all of it into the distant future. And once you push it off, you know, it's, it's, it becomes so easy to let fear dictate when you do that, which for a lot of people ends up being never. So I guess I'm, I'm thinking about it and it's just like, I mean, people, it's so true because you can get into this idea of like, Oh yeah, tomorrow I'll, I'll do this. And next week, you know, then you feel bad that you didn't do it, you know, but you made steps to like every day. All right, gradually. All right. This is what I'm going to do today. All right. This is I'm going to do this little thing. I'm imagining this bank account, even the bank account. Right. Like I'm going to bank here. These little details, if you break them down one by one, then it doesn't become so overwhelming. Right. Like it's like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, I've been of course it's here because this is what I've been building towards and just having the the vision to know like this is what's gonna happen even having like a realistic or not even realistic but like saying hey 2030 this is what this is what i want it to be you know more matter of a fact like this is how mm -hmm. it's gonna be you know yeah. the, just those words of affirmation um are important i can tell i can tell just based on our conversation one you read a lot of books maybe maybe self-help books i don't know but i know you read a lot um but two uh, I remember listening to an interview and you were in therapy and, um, you know, me, I've been in therapy for I think seven years um, just because to me, there's nothing better than uh, someone telling you're not crazy. Right. Because <laughs> a lot of times we go through our thing and then we're like, oh, yeah, I'm the only one going through this. And, you know, this is only happening to me. Like, God is punishing me for this and that. Mm -hmm. um, but tell us just and this doesn't have to necessarily be a part of it, but I'm just curious just because I don't meet a lot of black people in therapy um, or at least I not now is it's kind of picking up. But like, I guess, how does what is your approach to therapy and like how has it helped you? 
Man, therapy is is important. I mean, we go to the doctor, we go to the dentist, we go to these different places to ensure that our health is where it needs to be, but we neglect our mental. Mm-hmm. And that's that's problematic. You need an unbiased person to be able to hear you, provide feedback, and give you resources to navigate life. Mm-hmm. And it's been so instrumental uh, for you know my experience with therapy that I will always have therapy. Um, at a, you know. You don't ever stop going to the doctor just because you feel good. You'll have your annual checkup or whatever. I think you got to have regular touch points with a therapist as well. It should be standard. And it's something that I'm going to offer in my business as we as we scale as well. Mental health is going to be a priority. But it's just been so helpful just to sometimes you just want to be able to talk about whatever. Yeah. You know, even, even if it's not somewhere, hey, I need your opinion on this or your advice. It's just I just want to be able to talk freely about what's happening. You know, in my world, I'm married. I got three kids under five. I'm, I'm getting a business off the ground. You know, there's all these things I'm navigating. Sometimes I just want to let somebody know, like, this is heavy. Like, mm-hmm. this this is this is a lot to carry. And my wife's doing a lot, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So sometimes she might not even have the bandwidth to really receive the unfiltered emotions and thoughts that I may have. And, and the therapist can serve that purpose. So, if you're listening to this, I strongly recommend you get a therapist and try it out. And if you try someone and you don't like it, you try somebody else. That yeah. doesn't mean you don't do therapy. If you find a yeah. bad doctor, you're not going to stop going to get get checkups. You're yeah. going to find a different doctor. The, th- the same thing should apply for therapy as well. Well, what do you think? You're because you're you're also a, a man of faith. I guess what is the 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 difference? I guess like getting like how does your therapist help you, and how does your faith help you, especially during this journey? Yeah, I always like to say that God will a lot of times reveal things to you in isolation, mm-hmm. but it gets confirmed amongst others or, or through others. So the, the dynamic for me is, you know, God may drop something on my heart or my mind and I'm wrestling with it, trying to figure things out, you know, but it may take somebody uh, posing a question or uh, sharing a piece of feedback that connects with something he told me is, oh, you know what, you know, that, that's the confirmation I needed. Or uh, let me let me try to be a little bit more open because I'm still not clear. I'm still not mm-hmm. sure what, what he's sharing and talking to somebody helped me realize that and realize it was actually more of me trying to push for X, Y and Z rather than God telling me. So I think it just gives you confirmation. It gives you someone else to you know share what they're hearing and, and also telling you what you need to hear. Uh, which some some people may not feel comfortable doing. One question that I I had that I didn't say was what, what do you what do you want companies to take from your firm after like after they finish like what is something that you want like how do you know you've been successful? Yeah, I think you know when we're going through the process, it's commitment to what we're talking about. It's commitment to the plan and the roadmap that's laid out senior leadership involvement in terms of how I know I'm successful is if something can live on without me, mm. right? Without my firm. So we'd love to continue to provide fractional, you know, DEI services to your organization. But ultimately, you know, the goal is for you to be able to have a sense of direction, to have the infrastructure in place and to have the knowledge and tools needed to be able to continue to progress at this work, even when we exit the relationship. You're not going to fix your DEI issues overnight. You know, and a lot of organizations don't take a step because they're like, we don't know where to start. There's so much to do. Let's start from the basics. Why do you even want to do this? Right? Share that out. Get some feedback. Get some data. Create a plan. You know, it's the same thing you would do if you had a supply chain issue or you had a finance issue or operational issue. You would Figure out what you're trying to accomplish. You get some data involved. You create a plan, probably create a task force, right? And you execute the plan. The same thing applies to DEI, right? So it's, um, you know, I just want to see more organizations have a plan. Like this is our plan. And we have time set aside our meetings to discuss this really important plan. Hmm. How do you feel about uh, the idea of people coming to work as themselves? Because I think a lot of times, like for me, um, I'll, I'll dress a certain way or talk a certain way. And, you know, I think duality is tiring. I heard, uh, Tyler, the creator said it in a song and I just, I, I really believe just being yourself is the most important thing. 
how do you what what is what is your thoughts on coming to work as yourself and things like that that's where that's how every workplace should be and and that's so far from the truth for the standard workplace in america which is another reason why this work is so important to me because i didn't even know what that felt like to come to work as myself until you know 2020 you know, and, and, and it was Starbucks that helped me realize, oh, like I, I actually I actually needed to figure out who I was. I had so much corporate baggage on me, mm. you know, and, and that process, you know, allowed me to start to self-reflect and say, you know what? I've been doing too much assimilating to cultures instead of elevating the cultures. And when you're clear on your why as an organization, it makes it easier to do that because if you know innovation is one of your core values, you shouldn't be hiring any people who don't value and prioritize innovation. Mm. You could be black, white, in a wheelchair, gay, straight, whatever. But if you're about innovation, you align with our core values. And therefore, that in itself is synergy with the culture. But the problem is when you think somebody needs to go to a four-year education, a four-year school, if you have to have a master's degree, they need to live in this particular area and they need to be about innovation. Well, you, you've just now created an environment where the diversity is already gone because these things that you deem uh, mandatory are not truly necessary for somebody to do the job effectively. Truly thankful for this conversation. I definitely am going to be in touch uh, more often just to see how you grow and see how you're doing things. And like I say, you frat. So it's going, I mean, that's just how it should be.